Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast, friends. It's Kim Skorupski here at Hopkins and another Hopkins colleague and friend, Dr. Sharon Solomon. Hi, Sharon. Morning, Kim. How are you? I'm great. So happy to see you. All right, podcast people. Dr. Sharon Solomon, Sharon Denise Solomon, is our Catherine M. Graham Professor of Ophthalmology in the ophthalmology department. She's lots of specializations, and we'll probably get into that and a lot of expertise. Footnote, saving my Aunt Cheryl's eyesight is one of those things that nobody else could do, but we'll talk about that later. But Dr. Sharon Solomon is the co-chair of our Clinical Excellence Promotion Committee. So at Hopkins, you've also heard me mention that we had for the longest time one promotion track, if you will, this traditional research track. And recently, within a couple, maybe three years now, we created a new clinical excellence track. So Dr. Solomon is co-chair of that committee. And you've also heard me mention our senior associate dean for women, Dr. Jenny Lee Summers, knowing Sharon Solomon said, hey, Sharon, would you please come and talk to our women faculty in the Office of Women in Science and Medicine and share your wisdom and experiences around integrating promotion with life, our family life. So um, how do you balance trying to be successful in your academic career with family and actually having um, life outside of the ivory tower? So Dr. Solomon went back and figured out how to do that. And she's here today because of such a great, um, inspiring, encouraging session that I thought you'd like to hear it as well. So Sharon, thanks again for being here. And, you know, kick us off on when, when Jenny Lee asked you to do this, you know, what what came into your mind? And maybe you want to start with like how long you've been at Hopkins and, you know, how you manage this and what you know, how did this, ex- how did you develop and design this experience for our women faculty? Well, Kim, thanks, first of all, for having me. And I have to take my hat off to Jenny Lee. I really, really um, admire her in her, in her role as, um, you know, Associate Dean of, of Faculty to um, establish this platform for faculty members and, you know, emphasizing the importance of balancing family life and career. So first of all, I think the trifecta series hopefully will take off. And I think it's really um, going to be a, a tremendous value and service to, to our junior faculty, both men and women, quite honestly. That's, right. That's true. true. So to answer your question, I think that Jenny probably became aware of my personal situation, maybe when I um, gave a presentation from Miller Coulson and, and was sort of talking about what my, my clinical experience had been like at Hopkins and coming up through the ranks on the scholarship track. Um, as the mother of twins and someone who had a complicated pregnancy and a extended um, maternity leave and still managed to come back and put a clinical practice together, I think that she founded an inspirational story and I, I hope as well something that will encourage junior faculty not to, you know, give up <laughs> um, along that tremendously arduous path to promotion, but rather to figure out how to integrate family life and academics. I just want to, inter- just for interject one moment, I love your honesty and you're just being so genuine. And I think that's what a sign of a great leader that we need even more of people like you who don't pretend 
or put on this facade of I've got it all together and you just got to work hard and you just don't sleep. And if you're failing or struggling, then it's a problem with you. You need to fix you. This that kind of message, I think, is just not taken well um, and we can't do that. So I love how you kind of just bared your soul and just tell me this is what happened to me. This is how I got through. You can do it, too. It kind of made almost like a discernible exhale in the room of like, OK, here is someone right. who is internationally famous, has it all together. And we tend to judge people from their outsides and say, oh, my gosh, she's just got this perfect, you know, blessed gifted life. And you really don't know people's stories. So I really I want to applaud you and the rest of you out there listening that that honesty, that openness is just so uh, refreshing and needed. So thank you for doing that. So go ahead, please, please share. And that's and that's why I think these platforms are important. Also, I don't think I'm a I'm not a unicorn (laughs) among horses. I think there are lots of people who are out there and have their individual stories to share. And I think the more that these stories are put out there, the more it'll help. It'll help faculty. Um, You know, Kim, part of it really is just hard work. I would say that, you know, along the way, especially in academia, one has to remember, why did I go into medicine in the first place? It's very hard when you get caught up in, you know, you need to get promoted and there's a there's a timeline. And where am I in this timeline? You need to really, on a day-to-day basis, don't forget that you enjoy seeing patients. You enjoy your research. You enjoy what the mission is. Because life is difficult. Academia is difficult. And you really need to be personally inspired from day-to-day to to say there's a reason why today I'm going to miss lunch or not go to the bathroom during clinic or whatever the issue is. Because... You know, you have to have a reason to, to be dedicated and to remind yourself of what that dedication is. Otherwise, you're going to become burned out. Right. And when you add when you add family to that, I would say um, my personal sense of, you know, what's the secret sauce, so to speak, is that you have to rely on familial support if you're fortunate enough to have that. But you also have to realize that it's not that you're hitting a home run every day in everything, right? There are days where you have to say, you know what, this is an important week for my kids. My twins are finishing middle school, as I was telling you this week. Last week was exam week. So when I looked ahead months in advance at the calendar and made sure, gee, let's make sure I'm not on call during their exam week because they're going to have projects due. They're going to need, you know, maybe need me to help them get organized for their studying. So there's, there's always a, you know, what's the, what's the thing that's the, the utmost of importance this day, this week, this month, and you kind of arrange your schedule around it. So it means that, you know, if you know that you have a paper, a grant, whatever is due, you have to sort of say, okay, how am I going to organize all of this? So it's constantly, in a sense, just sort of being on top of what has to be done, prioritizing and realizing that, you know what? This, this week or these two weeks, it's going to have to be this book chapter that I have to finish and the kids are going to have to be on cruise control and my partner or whoever is helping you is going to have to sort of fill in the gaps there. Um, and other times it will be, gee, you know, my focus has to be on my family because the kids have important events that I don't want to miss um, and memories that you want to be part of. And I think realizing that integration is not a constant 
you know, everything requires equal attention all the time because they're equally important. It's really, you have to say at this moment or this period in time, what's the most important? How do I divide my interests? And how can I be there for my patients, you know, to a certain level and for my, and to my family and to my study coordinator and to all the people who require your attention, but it's always vacillating. It's always in flux. And you have to become comfortable with that. I have to admit, I struggle with that also because we, our training teaches us that you have to be 110% present all the time in all the facets. And I think the trick is realizing, you know what, I can be, and it's not to say that you're not doing a great job, but I can be 70% present for this and turn up to 110% for something else and everything can still get done. And it may not be at the same level, but it's, it's absolutely acceptable. And you just constantly adjust and re reassess. Oh, Sharon, I, thank you so much for saying that not everything, not every day is a home run day. And I think that is just the most important nugget. And I, I definitely want to learn more about how we can help each other to remind ourselves of that because you're, you're right. We are so tight. So many of us are type A, 100%. I'm bringing my A game for everything. And it it is exhausting because it's impossible. Yeah. You yes. can't, I, I teach, we teach in our leadership programs, for example, when we are being asked to give presentations and give talks. So at your national society, yes, you're bringing your A game. At your, the local um, YMCA, um, a friend of mine asked me to give a talk for the young kids and it, it was about aging and, uh, and I, I was certainly, I, I, of course I did a great job, but I did <laughs> not review the current literature. I didn't run some new data because it was, a, it was at the Y and there were kids and I had more fun. So exactly. I could have, because I felt myself going, okay, you know, roll the sleeves up. This is going to be fun. And I'm like, Kim, wait a minute. This is not a good use of my time. So that calibrating and learning when should it be the A game? When can when is the B game good enough? And when is the C game actually good enough? And that's where you kind of get cringy because Sharon, how do we swallow that lump in our throat going, oh, you know, you are a colleague of ours, Dr. Rachel Levine, is our associate dean for faculty educational development. And she's like, her kids are high school and first year of college. And she said, yeah, my kids came home from, my young son came home from college and said, mom, what's for dinner? And she said, do-yo, do-yo, dinner on your own. <laughs> and, I, and we're all cracking up, it's do-yo. She's like, oh yeah, I don't, I just have too much going on. They can fix, they're old enough now, they know how to fix dinner. But how do we, you know, Sharon, how do we, because you you do surgery on eyeballs, you have to be precise. How do you shift that switch to go and how do you do that? And how do you advise your trainees to relax and let that go and not be so type A about everything? Well, certain things you do have to be type A about. So when you're in surgery, not to not to send a mixed message, when you're repairing a retina, you're type A, right? So for that time period, that two to four to six hours, however long it takes to do it, you're type A during that. Um, but it could be, to give you an example, you know, in between, I've told my trainees, because the OR, for instance, to use that example, sets a pace where they want one case after the other. And if you don't somehow build in time to eat or go to the bathroom, you will be operating from 7 a.m. until 7 p.m. with no break at all. 
So I will tell my fellows, once we've finished the case, you've done your best for the patient, you know, you can delay marking the eye for a few minutes for the next patient. That sort of slows things down so you can go and for 10 minutes get sustenance, go to the restroom so that you're actually prepared for the next case. It's not just about the knowledge, your body, your, your body position. You can have cramps during surgery. Your hands can cramp, your legs can cramp, your back can begin to hurt because you're sitting in a certain position undisturbed hour after hour, meticulously fixing a retina. So you have to, you know, you have to be in it for the, the long game. You have to take care of yourself as well. And that's the hardest thing. I think in medicine, nothing that we do in our training focuses on taking care of yourself. And I have to admit for, for years, I was guilty of that also. And that's a harder lesson to learn. You just begin to realize as you get older, I think, especially that you have to sort of have these, you know, pearls, if you want to call them that, or tips and tricks for how to build in um, sustainability into, into the, the arduous uh, tasks that you perform on a daily basis. And hopefully in modeling that, you know, the, the, the people that I trained with, for instance, you know, there was never any, uh, you know, taking you aside and saying, gee, just don't mark the eye <laughs> and you can give yourself 10 extra minutes to, to get something done. It was sort of like, yep, let's get the next case started. Let's get the next case started. So hopefully in modeling that behavior for current trainees makes them realize, you know what, you can be, you can be um, incredibly productive and get all of these cases done, but sneaking five minutes here and 10 minutes there so you can eat, you can go to the restroom, you can return a phone call that's important, whether it's for a patient or for family issues, all of that is, is doable and does not compromise, doesn't compromise care. So Sharon, that's excellent. And and you mentioned earlier the idea of preparation. So we we know that like you gave the example of I look at my calendar and I see when my kids are going to be graduating or when they have break or when they have projects due and they're going to be exams and I'm going to have to be front-loading or offloading work, just um, sequencing work. And I imagine it's just like when you have a list, if when you're in surgery, you know the order of things that have to happen and the prioritization of things. In life, the same thing. So if you have your fa- your family calendar and you're planning for the trips or the graduations or the kids' dentist appointments, you just, you order your life that way. And yet, how do you, how do you ad- adjust for the curveballs that we get. Because I remember when you were saving my aunt's eyeball, you had, for part of the time, you had your leg in a cast. You had had surgery on your 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 pawpaw. And so you <laughs> you had this kind of like whoopsie or, you know, a plan thing. Of, how do we, how do we adjust when life throws us something like maybe unanticipated or unexpected or you get the bad news of the grant was you know, not scored or the paper was rejected or something happens that kind of throws you throws you off your game. How do you pivot and recalibrate and what advice do you have for us about that? Well, those things, that's a good question because those things are inevitable. It's part of life. And I think you have to learn, you just have to learn to take it in stride, right? It depends on the severity of it. Um, you know, if it's something, the examples you gave where it's a, it's a small, uh, blip in your in your rhythm, you can begin to rely on colleagues. So for instance, when I was out on bed rest and I had an extended maternity leave and, and complications for my pregnancy, I had to rely on colleagues to take good care of my patients. And I, you know, I tried to keep 
in the loop from home, but you can only do so much. So I would say realizing that, you know, these, these occurrences happen to all of us. And in due time, you'll be able to return the favor to someone else. So you, you know, there's no shame in it. There's no failing to meet the bar. You have to just sort of say, this is life. And luckily, I'm part of a very large, competent division with colleagues on faculty who can fill in the gap. And over the years that I've been here, I've certainly done the same for, for other colleagues. So you realize that. Um, on a personal level, again, that's where I think, think if you have a strong family unit, that's also helpful. You have a spouse who can who can assist or fill in. Um, I was fortunate to have parents who, when I was on my extended bed rest, could also help at home. Um, and even after the twins came, um, both my husband's family from Taiwan <laughs> came to the U.S. and my family was here. So we had lots of support. So I think it, it takes a village and there's no there's no shame in realizing that. And you, of course, are fully ready to contribute to other colleagues and to family members when they need assistance as well. With other things like integrating, you know, you talked about the busy calendars. You know, my children have been fortunate because when I've gotten invitations to give talks in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Buenos Aires, they've had opportunities to travel with me because oftentimes it'll overlap on their spring break or they went to Sao Paulo over Thanksgiving break because it fit right in with their schedule. So while I don't like them to miss school, um, if it coincides, then we, we plan the trip. So the kids realize, oh my goodness, my mom is going to give a lecture. So they see what you do. They realize how important it is. And they understand, well, gee, when, when she's working and locked up in the den, now I see what she's doing. And I understand why it's important when she's not necessarily watching that television program with us or having dinner with us that night because she has to get something done that night. So I think it, 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 it hopefully, I hope, inspires them and also makes them realize how important other facets of your life are, not just being their parent, right? That's wonderful. I, I, I love that. Well, backwards, I, lo I love that you said that the kids then understand and, and can connect the dots when you invite them to be part of that experience. And that just makes so much sense that you can leverage the invitation to build in some time with family and letting the kids and your partner actually see you in action to have a new, maybe a newfound sense of appreciation for, okay, now I, I see that the hard work pays off and this is, this is that, this is how that works in life. That's just a great lived experience of the kids. So I, I, I love that. And you said now twice, at least twice, no shame. There's no shame, no shame. And I really want to underline that as well, that especially, you know, we're post COVID now, but there's just so much turmoil and, and just so much stress and pressure on our, our clinical faculty to, to realize and to remind them this is life. Life happens. And you said that, you know, I will return the favor. We're, we're human beings after all. And, and people get that when, oh my gosh, my mom in Pennsylvania or Taiwan, I mean, around the world now, we have faculty around, parents around the world has an issue. Oh my gosh, absolutely. You must go. You be with them. You do what we have to do. Or my kid, fill in the blank. Of course, we get that. And that's the beauty of, you know, being in community with people who get who get you and who understand you and appreciate you and that is i think one of the blessings of you know academia is that we do there's that kindness that built in we're not like cutthroat making money and 
we're obviously not making money, but I'm thinking like, oh, if she's <laughs> had a problem that I'm going to get her clients, I'm going to, and I'm going to steal her clients. It's, it's not that kind of a business that we do cover for each other. But I do want to under, underline that there's no shame in admitting or even yourself, I'm struggling. You know, I'm having anxiety. I'm having depression. I'm having, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm going through a divorce. My kids are this, or my mom just passed. That having those open conversations and realizing there's no shame in being a human being. Right. And that, right. and that is almost also in addition to admitting our vulnerabilities and admitting our fears and our worries, it's also an invitation for other people to then say, Oh, you too, Dr. Sharon Solomon, you, you also had a difficult pregnancy. You took time off. You, Oh, you get it. You're not going to judge me because I, so it's just so important. And I'm so glad you, you're putting this out there. Absolutely. I, I can't, I can't even emphasize to you how many emails and, and texts I got from people after the trifecta series that um, Jenny Lee Summers put on. Um, people just reached out to me and said, oh my goodness, I'm going through this now, or I went through this and I didn't know what to do. And I, it was really impressive that people reached out, just people that I wasn't even familiar with. So again, I, I hope that that sort of um, platform will be helpful to people down the road. Right. But I also have to emphasize, you know, when you were talking about being human, I think it's an important characteristic to show your patients also. I, I find that my patients relate to me better because I'm not this physician on a pedestal who knows all and, and is very formal, but rather I think what has kept the, the relationship with the, the intimate relationship that I share with a lot of my patients over the 20 years that I've been on faculty now is that they they've known about my pregnancy, they've known about the bed rest, they ask about my children, they've heard stories about my parents. I mean, they really, you know, in, in, in addition to providing them good care, you can tell that they have this sort of bond with you that's very special. And that's what I mean too. Those are the things that on a difficult day, it keeps you going because you, you're seeing, you know, it used to be when I started on faculty, we'd see 17 to 20 people a day. And now everybody's seeing 40 to 50 patients a day. So it's, it's grueling on a daily basis. That's just a regular day. But what keeps you going is you walk into the room, you're like, oh, it's this patient. And then it's this patient. And you, you know, it's like an excitement for seeing the person because you really value the relationship you have with them beyond just the patient physician relationship. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you said that earlier, you know, look and remind yourself what inspires you and that, that despite all the challenges and the rejections and the feelings of inadequacy and the imposter phenomena, all these things that happen to us on a daily basis. You know, I love how you describe that. You walk into the room and you go, oh, it's this family. And you've you've built a relationship on authenticity and and genuine caring about them that you get that that validation of like, yes, you know, I, I care about you. I'm helping you. And and they see you and that is the I imagine what ins what keeps you inspired and encouraged and just like our 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 research investigators in the in the lab the same thing of of working with trainees and making the discovery and and helping people get their papers published and getting the good score on the grant all those little things that kind of feed us and keep us going that remind us oh that's right that's why i do this it feels good to have those successes 
and knowing that people get us and yeah, we're all on this journey together. It's um, right. Right. Yeah. And sometimes it's not always success. It is just knowing you have provided the patient with some sort of a, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to dumb it down by saying like emotional support, but we certainly see patients for whom it's too late to save their vision, right? You've done surgery and you can't fix that fourth detachment because it's, it's too chronic. There's no tissue left to save. And yet you see these patients coming back to you. And I say to myself, you know, I, there's nothing more I can physically do, but they, they keep coming back. And I think it's because of the, the emotional support that you provide, even as an ophthalmologist, that you did not abandon them. Mm. And you know, I find, and that's one thing that I'm grateful for, for being in this field, you start out, you spend your whole, well, I spent my whole life, you spend your whole life studying to prepare for this. And you start out and you're in your 20s. And I find that as a physician, you get better and better as you get older because you have perspective and maturity and you yourself have suffered illness. So you develop empathy. I think we're sympathetic, but you don't know what it's like until you yourself are ill or compromised or unable to do something. It gives you a different sense of appreciation for what your patients go through. So I find that it's a profession where you you just your self-awareness increases as you get older. So you you know that's that's what I mean by practicing joy also. All of those things keep you going because you realize, you know what, this is not something that I'm going to become bored with or outgrow. And I think your patients sense that passion. I think your trainees sense that passion. And you just begin to realize, even as you get older, that this is such an incredible privilege. How lucky was I to make this decision at a young age, not knowing what it really was until a good 20 years later. Wow. What humility. That is just beautiful. I love that perspective of being humble and realizing I, I can almost see that of like holding your patient's hands. You're, we're just walking along together through life and I'm going to walk with you. Even if, you know, even if I can't repair that retina, I'm walking with you as, you know, just to be, to be with you. And so that's, it's a beautiful that's a beautiful uh, perspective. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, Dr. Solomon, could we could we pivot a little bit and could you share some wisdom around promotion? So you are the co-chair of our Clinical Excellence Promotion Committee. Could you just say some some words? This is a I started off this is a relatively new promotion track for us. Um we we added this track so there're now two and could you share maybe some some feedback for, for faculty who are listening to this who say, I, I'm trying to get promoted. I'm thinking about getting promoted. Maybe if you want to put it in terms of um, bugaboos or little areas where you think we could um, get ourselves over that hump of getting promoted. Where do you see faculty struggling with it? Or where like the um, knock it out of the park, it's really easy to get someone promoted when they have this or that. You know, how, how can you um, shed some light on faculty who are who are also clinical experts they're in the surgery they're in the the um waiting rooms or they're, they're in the patient rooms um how how can you inspire them or encourage them about promotions so i can say that i am so happy and you know i don't want to sound condescending but proud of johns hopkins for developing this clinical excellence promotion pathway i think that there is no better time than now as a clinician to to consider becoming promoted. Um, and the committee has been uh, in, in action for a little more than a year, le less than two years. 
And we have seen people come through who have been promoted, who have been at rank for 20 or 30 years as an associate professor or as an, as an assistant professor. So these are people who've been at rank for 20 or 30 years as an assistant professor, an associate professor, but they are well known in the field. They are the pillars of Johns Hopkins in terms of clinical care. Their reputation seeps outside the walls of the institution nationally, internationally, but they didn't have a pathway forward for formal recognition. So I think there's there's never been a better time to be a clinician and to seek promotion at Johns Hopkins. You know, the, the whole premise is that the clinical excellence pathway is um, on par with the traditional or what they call the scholarship track. But obviously, because these are they, these are faculty members who spend at least 60% of their time clinical, so they're in clinic perhaps three or four days a week in addition to surgery, um, I would say that it's ideal for people who uh, can figure out how to use their, their clinical experience to generate scholarship and to, and to promote their, their reputation beyond the walls of the institution. So, for example, even though I was promoted along the scholarship track, I was in the pathway that still exists, which is called a, cl- a clinician of distinction. And my, you know, for the 20 years that I've been on faculty, up until I became promoted to full professor, I was seeing patients three full days a week, doing surgery a day a week. So I was able to develop a um, an, a scholarship pathway that involved doing clinical trials in diabetes, macular degeneration, things that I could draw from my clinical practice. And I think that the clinical excellence pathway is perfectly set up for people who have that sort of a academic paradigm. People who are, you know, doing registries and um, educating trainees and establishing programs, all of that can now be recognized and awarded, I think, um, along the clinical excellence pathway. So I would encourage faculty to attend the many information sessions that are that are taking place for, the, for this pathway um, and to contact the dean's office and the website also for more information. But I think a lot of people should consider um, at least looking at what the criteria are and, and beginning to tailor what their academic career looks like so that they can focus on moving along this pathway. That's, that's wonderful. And at your institution, wherever you are, it's the same. It's the same advice, and I I oftentimes think to me because faculty probably come to you, Sharon, as well, and say, "Well, I'm different. I'm unique. You know, I'm not quite the same as everyone else." And yes, we're all everybody's unique in academic medicine. That's the beauty of it. We could be what we want to be, and and yet you can look at people who are maybe a heartbeat above you or beyond or ahead of you on the track or on the ladder, and see people who are going all along different promotion pathways and say. Would you please share your CV with me? Would you share your letter with me? Can I take a look at your dossier, your portfolio, so I can get a sense of how you've told your story? You know, how have you put the package together? How have you made the case for this or that? Or um, can I buy a cup of coffee? Can you tell me how when you got promoted, Dr. Solomon, 20 years ago, can you can you walk me through how you, you know, schedule that or how you made that happen. And so it gives you ideas of, oh, I hadn't thought about leveraging this opportunity with that opportunity. So I think a lot of times, I guess what I'm trying to say is you don't, you're not on your own. You don't have to figure this all out by yourself. You have your annual review and your mentors and 
and your dean's offices and and hopefully people who've recently been promoted, they would love to share their good news and and share their joy with you and tell you, well, let me tell you how I did it. I know we're not the same. We're not apples to apples altogether, but you can kind of see a template or a model, right? Exactly. You're absolutely right, Kim. So the, the committee members themselves who represent many of the departments in the School of Medicine who are on the Clinical Excellence Promotion Committee are spokespeople for the pathway. Some themselves, now, now that the pathway has been in existence for a year or two, we have faculty members who are on committee who were themselves promoted along this pathway. So they're great spokespeople for other faculty members to look at their CV and, as you say, their impact statements. Um, and we are currently setting up um, the website, much as the traditional or scholarship track has, with examples, CVs, impact statements referee letters, all of the things that you see that are that are um, current templates for the scholarship track. So I think that would also let people see what what, what are sort of the, the bars and the metrics that have to be met. But a lot of people who have been here for years, and I think in, uh, you know, in a way they've been preparing to be promoted along the scholarship track, have, have built substantial academic records. And um, you know, it's just a matter of tweaking that and making it adaptable to the clinical excellence pathway, because for a lot of these people, the clinical excellence piece is already there. And it's just a matter of purposing their portfolio. Right, right. And so if you're listening to this and you're in a dean's office, you do faculty development, faculty affairs, you're clearly already doing these kinds of things, seminars and workshops and how-to sessions. And what we're doing here at Hopkins, again, thanks to our, our colleague, Dr. Jenny Lee Summers, our dean for women, Office of Women in Science and Medicine is these the trifecta series. She's Jenny is organizing a new workshop on how to get promoted, how to put your CV in the right order. And we have a customized format you have to use here at Hopkins. And I'm sure you at your institution have a similar setup. And then how to work on your letter, putting your impacts impact statement together. And we're putting we're what we're offering for our faculty are small pods, like peer coaching pods, much like built on our what we have here at Hopkins WAGs, what we develop writing accountability groups. We're offering to facilitate these pods of colleagues who would get together and support each other and say once a week, work on our letter together. So just virtually hop on a Zoom and you're not writing it for each other, but you're spending that time committed to we're all going to get together for once a week and we're going to work on the CV or the impact statement or the, the promotion letter just to keep us accountable to each other to making this happen. So you could do these things at your institution. You can ask your deans, your leaders, your committee members, like Dr. Solomon suggesting that you could put these, um, facilitate this kind of opportunities to help you and your colleagues get promoted, right? I think that's a great idea, Karen. I, I, you know, you may not remember years ago, I did one of your writing accountability groups and it was I, phenomenal. But just as you said, you know, when people, we, I've done seminars for the promotion sessions where people who've Zoomed in have said, you know, I just can't find the time to get my CV together to get promoted. I've been held up with the process because I just can't find the time to put my CV together. And that's where we go back to the beginning of this podcast and you just have to prioritize and say, you know what, the most important thing right now is getting the CV done. And if that means, and I hate to you know, use the proverbial get less sleep, but if that means that I get up a half an hour earlier, that's what I would do. I would get up a half an hour earlier 
And that was the only thing on my desk for that week. I'm going to work on the CV for half an hour every day before I go to clinic, before I go to surgery, or at night, 20 minutes before I go to bed. And the time adds up. And before you know it, it's gotten done. So you really have to say, if you are at the point where you want to consider promotion, and this is the most important thing right now, then you have to eke out. And it's not going to be that I sit down and I have three days to work on my CV. We never have that. It has to be that I will take 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, and over time, you, you'll just get it done. So I think the, 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 the analogy to what you do with the writing accountability groups is a great idea. I'm glad to hear that you're doing that for promotional study. Oh, thank you, Sharon. And you are so right. When I like how you gave the example of if it means a half an hour earlier to do this, to get this done, and especially if there's an end in mind, an end in sight. You can see that this will be this will end. So this too shall end. This is not for the rest of my life. I have to do this, and this is going to be what a drag. But just like when there's a grant deadline, or just when your child's going to be graduating, or there's some you you have an end in mind, or when you have that surgery, but you're going to recover. You see the the end of the tunnel. So you're like for for this much for this long, I can do this. Right. And then you stop, and then you recalibrate and pivot. Or guess what? You might say, you know what? I've been able to figure out that half an hour in the morning earlier in the morning is lovely. It's quiet. It's peaceful. It's before I get on the road. The house is asleep. I like it. And now I can pivot and go to bed a half an hour earlier, or uh, I'm going to keep doing this because I can now start doing some writing and it kind of helps me get myself or do some meditation or go for a walk or, or I don't have to do that anymore. And I'm going to go back to sleep and have that extra half an hour. So I think just, you know, knowing that when we're in these in these kind of these in the tough in the in the shallows or what's that song whatever in, in the deep end of the water whatever that song was um it's not necessarily forever so we can sometimes push to get the grant out and then breathe you exactly. can push to get through something and then breathe so no shame in in putting through that big burst of that effort but calibrating and repivoting and coming back to center and saying, all right, what feels good? What do we need now as a, as a surgeon, as a mom, as a partner, as a colleague and re coming right back to like center. I think that's so important. And for really, you know, for faculty just joining their institution, what I would say is find out how your institution wants its CV structured and you keep a running CV all along. So you give a talk. When you come back, it goes right into the CV. You do a media event. You publish a paper. You write a book chapter. You're developing a program, whatever. I mean, the, the CV, especially for people who are just starting out in their careers, is sort of like, you know what? I have to keep my checkbook up to date. You have to keep the CV up to date. So it's not that things, there's this backlog and all of a sudden, how am I going to prepare my CV for promotion? Your CV, if you're just starting out, should be continually updated every month. I still keep a folder where I say, okay, what did I do this month? And at the end of the month, I update my CV so it doesn't become a chore. Right, right. Keep a living document on the desktop. You're so right. That is the C, the so curriculum vitae, the life of our, our work. It's, that's a, it is a living, breathing document. And you can't remember that stuff. I'll think, oh, I'll get that later. I'll remember that. I'm not going to remember how many people were on that Zoom call when I gave that talk, because if you're giving Zoom talks, which count now, 
ideally you want to be able to say how many people were on the Zoom. Did I give a talk for, you know, Dr. Sharon Solomon or was it Dr. Sharon Solomon and, and 155 other people? So we're not going to remember those things. Hence, you know, documenting it, minimally putting, making a note to yourself, sending yourself an email so that it's on the calendar the day you did it so that you can go back, like you said, Sharon, and look at the calendar. Oh, that's right. I gave that talk. And oh, that's right. Right there in the in the calendar that day, I made a note to myself or an Outlook appointment to myself. I put that note there. I do a lot of reminders to myself in my calendar. So I love that. Well, this has been great, Dr. Sharon Solomon. I hope you uh, uh, loved her like we do and, and learned a lot from her integrating the pursuit of promotion with family and life and um, lots of, lots of um, secret sauce wisdom, I think she shared with us. So Dr. Sharon Solomon, I'll leave the, the final words to you um, here in the Faculty Factory podcast. Well, I would just say that, you know, the, the road is de- definitely challenging. Nobody's saying it's easy. It's challenging. But just like medicine, if, if, you, if you still enjoy it, hopefully it's rewarding and it becomes more rewarding as you do it. I find as a parent, something that I just feel blessed to have become um, the combination of the two just get better and better as you get older. Um, one of my kids, you know, you, you try to impart things on your children and the boys are at an age, they're teenagers. And, you know, sometimes I wonder, do they even know what I do? And one of them teasingly said to me yesterday, you know, he's like, well, aren't you supposed to be this world famous ophthalmologist? So I was like, oh my goodness, at least he knows, <laughs> he knows what I do. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I am. You're welcome. <laughs> so my point is, hang in there. It's it's always difficult. Anything in life that is worth having is difficult to obtain. Um, becoming a super athlete is difficult. Becoming a priest, I suspect, is difficult. Becoming a physician, I know, is difficult. Being a parent is difficult. Doing them right requires dedication but it's always a balance. And just even when it, even when you're in the thick of it and you see, you feel like, you know what, none of this is going to turn out right because I'm not dedicating enough time to anything. Stay with it because I think in the end it does, it does turn out well and just make sure you're enjoying, enjoying the whole experience. Dr. Sharon Solomon. Thanks everybody. Come back next time to the Faculty Factory Podcast. Hello, everyone. It's your podcast producer. Just wanted to let you know that as of August 1st, 2023, this podcast that you're listening to has had over 73,000 total downloads and YouTube views from listeners in 84 different countries in the Faculty Factory website, facultyfactory.org. It has drawn over 37,000 web visits from users in 122 different countries. It's truly an international platform, and we would love to invite you to be a guest on this show. Our host, Dr. Skorupski, makes the experience super fun, very laid back. If you want something taken out of the actual recording, I'm totally happy to do that as the podcast producer. I'll make the edit. No pressure. You're going to have fun with it. We just want to hear from different faculty around the world about their experiences. So reach out to us, facultyfactory.org slash contact us. It's the contact us page on Faculty Factory. And let us know if you'd like to be on the show. We will get you in touch with Dr. Skorupski, or you can email her directly at kskorupski at jhmi.edu.
Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.